Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and if Dwayne will give my Bible back since he took it with him. I'm prepared, but I'd rather have it in my hand if you don't mind. Thank you, Dwayne. <laughs> Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Would you pray with me? We'll read the scripture. Lord, we thank you, O God, for the truth of the scripture. Now, Lord, may we not trust our own feelings or conclusions, but that we would give ourselves away to the word that stands forever. And I pray, O oh God, today that your spirit would guide us into all truth and that you would teach us and help us, Lord, away from ourselves and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29 to start with. Before we reach the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's the most important commandment. Verse 25 says that one day an, ex an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered in verse 27, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, Just do this and you'll live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Before we answer that question of who is my neighbor, let's answer the first question he asked in verse 25. What should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question, isn't it? It's a question that every single one of us in here, I would bet, has considered. What does it take to get to heaven? What does it take to have eternal life? This is a solid question, and it's a question that happens in our heart because eternity was planted there by God. This is a question that makes sense to every person who has been through the eighth grade and studied eighth grade world history. Because every civilization from the beginning of man has studied what happens in the afterlife. Reaching their own conclusions, this is also why God has given us the truth about what happens as he has provided for the afterlife. This is why we love John 3.16, because it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whosoever believes in him will not die, but will have what? Everlasting life. Life. Life is what is of ultimate value. And you are wise to think about your life, and you are wise, the Bible says, to think about death. Because the scripture says and teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That is not my opinion. That is not what I think happens. That is what the Bible says happens. It's appointed unto man once to die and then there is judgment by a holy, almighty, righteous God. If there is judgment after death, that means two things. One, no one, goes no one goes to heaven just because. Just because we're all here doesn't mean that we all show up in the presence of God. Now, I know we like to think of ourselves as that high and mighty and special. But just because we exist does not mean that we enter into the presence of a holy God with a holy standard. He is a righteous judge. If there is a judge, there will be a judgment. Secondly, what that means, judgment after death means no one is annihilated. It means no one just ceased to exist, like we're all here and in the last breath is just over. 
and, and, and we just poof, puff of smoke. No, it's judgment means it's fellowship with God or not. It means in or out. It means with him or separate from him. Now, when we hear this and consider the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life, and know there's a judgment before we get there, to hear this today likely brings to your mind and your heart either fear or uncertainty, or, or fear and uncertainty or certainty or assurance. It likely brings this, I don't know, or for those of you that understand what God has done for you, and if you believe that with your whole heart, you have got blessed assurance. It is my hope and my prayer that before the end of this day, you will understand the good news that God has done all the hard work for you. That God has made a way, and by the way, it's the only way according to God, that you will be right in his presence forever, and that is through the blood of Jesus that gives us eternal hope as he has defeated death in the grave. According to the scripture, that is the way we survive the judgment and thrive in his presence. When the expert asked the question of what he should do to receive eternal life, Jesus responded by asking him a question. Hey, you're the expert here, man. You tell me what it says in the law of Moses. And so, the expert of religious law quoted Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all that you've got and love your neighbor. Now, what Jesus says is interesting in verse 28 because Jesus says, absolutely right. Now, wait a minute. Why would he tell him he's absolutely right? Why would he answer that with right? I thought you just said we had to be saved. I thought you said we had to be rescued. I thought you said we had to be forgiven and there was the blood and the cross and the resurrection. If, if he was right, then why did Jesus say that? Well, Jesus was confirming what was written in God's law, and it is true. If you love God with all of your being, and you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, then you can love that perfectly, you're in for sure. Everybody good? So basically, when Jesus said, right, do this and you will live, Jesus was saying to him, good luck, buddy. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody in here this morning could absolutely before with a straight face and in front of everybody else go, I've got that checked off. I've done all of those things. I've also loved my neighbor as much as I love myself. I've, I've done that as well. This is not possible by the best human effort. You see, God's law in the Old Testament is not calling for our best effort. He is calling for perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Do you know the odds of bowling a perfect game? The odds of bowling, a we're going to talk about bowling for a few times this morning. That's probably weird on Easter Monday, just go, Sunday, just go with it. The odds of bowling a perfect game are 11,500 to 1. 11,500 to 1. Anybody in here ever bowled a perfect game? Just, just as a, yep, first service either. In fact, in the first service I asked that question, I look around, there's a guy that's in the back, and he looks around like this, and he smiles, and I called him. He raised his hand like this. I was like, you a lie. <laughs> and he, he puts his hand back down. We laughed about it after the service. Just think about that. Two services in, 11,500 to one odds. What makes us think that if we can't bowl a perfect game, that we somehow are going to be right in and of ourselves before a holy God over a lifetime of thoughts, actions, attitudes, words, and deeds. You see what I'm telling you? 
think about that. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, No one ever can be right with God by doing what the law commands. The law in the Old Testament, all of God's statutes to show his holy standard, the law simply shows us how sinful we are. The speed limit shows us how sinful we are. It just proves that we're going to need grace or a ticket one. So simply stated, no sinner, nobody can obey perfectly. No one can love God and love others without fail. Not me, not you, not an expert in religious law. No one, from the pastor, from the pastor to the prisoner, no one can fulfill the standard of God perfectly without fail. We cannot love God in obedience and love our neighbors in compassion perfectly without fail. So when we reach that conclusion, what do we do? We really do one of two things. One, we can quit, knowing that we can't ever accomplish it. And some of y'all have been told in your, in your life by your families or even in your churches, you've got to do this, 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 and this in order to be right and stay right. And you found out you can't, and you're here today just because somebody invited you, but you quit a whole long time ago. Well, I'm here to tell you they told you wrong, by the way. So you can either quit or, second option, you can justify your actions. You can justify yourself. And by justifying ourselves, then of course we get in because we've made a way for us to be right. So you can either quit or you can justify yourself. I'm here to tell you there's a third way that we're going to get to, and that's the way you need to go. But what we do when we find out that nobody can be perfect, we begin to justify ourselves. And we do that by one of two ways. First, we either try to make the standard of God match our lifestyle. This is how I'm going to live, and we don't say it this way, but we think, God, you're going to have to get up with it because this is how it's going to be for the rest of my life. But we want to get into heaven, so instead of us aligning ourselves with you, we're going to make you align with me. And that's what we do to try to justify our actions. Like, I know God is holy. I know God is without stain. I know God is absolute light and no darkness. But my conclusion of what I need to do is this, so that's how I'm going to get into heaven. You see, it's, it's like I know that 300 is a perfect game in bowling, but all I can do is 170. That's the best that I can do. And, hey, we all bowl gutter balls, so we all going to get in. In fact, that's the best I've ever done is 170. No joke. I said this at uh, the first service, too, and on the second service, the best I've ever bowled is 170. I was at Auburn University. I was a student there for a short time. Uh, while I was at Auburn, they had this intramural bowling team. Some guys were like, hey, you want to bowl? I'm like, whatever, dude, okay. And so I went, and I was, I was on this intramural bowling team. I went in, and I don't know, for those of you that bowl regularly, uh, 170 is not bad. Like, well, it wasn't bad for our team. 170 was actually the best on our team that day. I bowled 170 the best I've ever done, and y'all, I was like bowling and like holding it. You know what I mean? Like, I was over there like with the hand dryer like this, and somebody give me a glove. Let's go. You know? So I'm bowling. After I bowled a 170, and it was our top score, and I think we beat the other team, those guys were like, man, you did awesome, man. Hey, next week, same place and time. And I was like, okay, and I left going, I ain't never coming back. Why? Because I can't do that again. There's no way, and I haven't done it since. There's a guy before, uh, after the service, he comes out and he goes, hey, 276. And I was like, wow, that's not bad. He goes, yeah, but dude, my wife bowled 270. Come on, you know? So we, we realize we can't do 300, 
and all we can do is 170, and we're okay with 170, so we're going to make the plaque come to us. We're going to justify ourselves. And we do the same thing with heaven. We do the same thing with God. We reach our own conclusions about eternity. Well, this is all I can do, and I've done my best, or I hope that my good outweighs my bad. What is that? Ultimately, we want to be with God, so instead of turning to him for grace and his lordship, because when he saves us, he gets to tell us what to do, by the way. But instead of going that route, we find it easier just to justify our actions. And we do that one of two ways. The first way that we do that is what I said. We try to match our lifestyle to God. Secondly, though, what we also do is we minimize the standard of God so that we can say we're fit for heaven. The religious expert knew that he couldn't do the first one. He knew that he could not say, this is all I can do, so God's going to take it. He knew that the Scripture said, with all your heart, all your soul, strength, mind. He knew that he said, with all. So it was perfect obedience that he was calling for. So he couldn't act like he didn't know what was in God's law. This is like, I know bowling is a 300 is the standard, but I don't bowl 10 frames. I only bowl two. And I can knock down two strikes in a row. And so when I make it into this box that fits those two strikes in a row, now give me the plaque. Once again, I shrink the standard for me to fit in. Again, we do this with our loving our neighbor. And this is what he was trying to do. Let me minimize the standard. Just tell me, Lord, who is my neighbor? And so with this, we realize that when we shrink loving our neighbor to our friends and our family and the people we like, well, yeah, we're going to get in based on that if that's the case. Y'all, can I tell you something? The worst people in history love their first circle. The worst people of all time, the people that you could think of uh, of, in the, the history of the world to be the worst human beings. Well, yeah, they can justify their actions too by shrinking that circle of God's love to their friends and family. All, all of us do that. But that's what we do when we, when we are met with the reality that we cannot be perfect. We will begin to justify ourselves. I want you to know, though, there's a third option when you discover that you are a sinner and you cannot obey God perfectly. There's a third option when you discover that your love for God and your love for others will fail. There is a third option. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment, Did y'all know that's not the end of that verse? The second half of that verse says this, So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Jesus died. That is the third and only option for our entrance before a holy God is through the sacrificial system of blood that he accomplished through Jesus Christ. And Jesus died for our sins, but he didn't stay there because in all the power of God, he rose from the grave. And when your hope is in Christ, you will too. That is the truth of God's word. See, this means a perfect score is not possible. And when a perfect score is not possible, you don't have to quit. And you don't have to justify yourself. We look foolish when we do that. What we should do is throw ourselves at the mercy of God and know that he's made a way for our forgiveness. Now, Jesus is going to tell a story here to this religious expert to illustrate the unfailing love of God expressed in the world. 
Kids, this is what's on your outline, so follow along. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. And the scripture says, Jesus replied to this expert with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him into an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, then I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three, to the law, to the, the expert of religious law, he said, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked, and the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Lord, please take us the rest of the way and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of the Good Samaritan shows God's compassion and love in the world, but it also illustrates Jesus' love for the world. The man in the ditch was a Jewish man. The rescuer and the hero of the story was a Samaritan. If you are not familiar with this dynamic, the Jews and the Samaritans in Scripture hated one another. They could not stand one another. The Samaritans to the Jews were half-breeds. They were lesser thans, always looked down upon like you never get it right. You'll never get in because you never get it right. And then the Samaritan looked at the Jews like pompous punks, know-it-alls, Kind of like the religious expert that wants to throw the son of the living God a question. And so they see them this way. They are despised, and both of them feel this way towards the other. If you look at the chapter that comes before, just one chapter before, Jesus was traveling on the way to Jerusalem. And while he is making his way to Jerusalem, and being from a Jewish context, he sends a couple of guys with him ahead to book them a room in an inn, basically to arrange some some place for them to stay And when they get to Samaria, Samaria says, y'all got to keep on going because you're not going to stay here. They wouldn't even give them a place to stay. So two of Jesus' followers with them came back to Jesus and said to him, them being of Jewish descent, said to Jesus, they won't even give us a place to stay. Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and just scorch them all? I'm serious. That's That's what it says. They're like, Lord, you just want to just take them out. We know what you can do. Man, we've seen you do it before. Just take them out. You know how we feel about this. And Jesus really, Jesus was like, what? No. No. Like, in fact, the Bible says that he rebuked them. He turned to them and rebuked them. See, what Jesus is saying is, you must, you, you try to take down and talk down enemies, I'm trying to raise them up. You see, Jesus is teaching us, those folks that you despise, instead of treating them like the enemy, maybe look at them like they're the mission. That we, we are to reach people outside of the love and relationship of God. I mean, they literally could not stand each other. So think about this. When Jesus is standing before the religious expert and he does not use someone from his connection to be the hero of the story. Because what we read is that a temple priest and an assistant to the regional priest, that's a joke, 
an assistant to the priest. What we read there is when that came up, all of the folks that were listening would have thought story over because they fixed it. Story over. Temple priest and the assistant, they took care of it because those are the ones that are close to God. The very ones that they thought would help did not help. The love of God in the world looks like compassion and action for anyone who is in need. Anyone. Anyone. You know, that does not mean that love gives up the truth. Love does not mean, loving somebody does not mean that you excuse everything that they do or agree with everything that they do. But when somebody's laying in the roadside dead, you try to give them life. That's what the Lord is teaching in one passage, one part of this passage. Christians, and I'm not just talking to pastors and staff and not just talking to people that have been in ministry and all these things. Christians, did you know that it's possible for us to claim to be the people of God and miss the mission of God? Now, I'm talking to to a bunch of folks today, and some of us, we all know what our relationship with God is like, but if you claim to follow Jesus, when you see somebody laying in a ditch, you'll stop and help. Come on. So why did they not stop by? If, if we walked in and said to the temple priest and the assistant, do you guys love God and love others? Well, you know we do. I work over here at this church. I got saved a long time ago. I was baptized at such and such date. My uncle's cousin, third removed, was a preacher. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we do. We love God and we love people. Couldn't make it without them. Really? Because the guy over here that's suffering... You looked at him and ignored him and passed to the other side. So, so why did they do that? Why did these, the, these that they thought would help, why did they not help? For one, if the priest and the assistant were to touch this body that they may have found dead, they would have been considered unclean. And by unclean, they would have not been allowed to work in the temple, and they would have not had to go through a lot of cleansing ceremonial rituals in order to get back into the place where they were able to do what they were supposed to do. So what that means, long story short, is they just didn't want to deal with it. They just didn't want to stop. They just didn't want to help them. To deal with it meant that they would have to disrupt their normal schedule in order for them to actually help somebody that's in need. To deal with him meant that they would actually probably have to get his blood on their hands. The dirt that he lay him in would be on their clothes. It would take up their time. They would have to give up their resources. They just didn't want to deal with it. Every Christian here, listen to me. I feel at the very core of myself for this Easter weekend, y'all, we cannot get so wrapped up in the world that we miss the very reason why we are in it. The very reason we're here. We'd rather, we'd rather argue with somebody than to help them. We'd rather post something else than to see needs in the world that we could actually meet and be the light. Ladies and gentlemen, do we really want to shout people down when they're in the ditch? Where do you want them to go when they finally figure it out? If our schedule and our budget doesn't allow for the mission of God, if our schedule and our budget doesn't work for the glory of God and the good of others, if our schedule and our budget is not about the mission for the glory of God or to accomplish God's purpose in the church. We're going to live out, not the great commission found at the end of the Gospels, we're going to live out Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. You planted much, but you harvested little. Oh, y'all were real busy, but you didn't get a whole lot done. 
And because we know the investment that it will take to help someone, we know what it's going to take to disciple someone and walk with someone through something. We know what it's going to take to help somebody up out of a ditch. We finally look at our budget and our calendar and we go, we don't have that kind of time and money. And even if we wanted to help, we can't because everything's tied up. What hurts about this, y'all, is these are the very people that the man in the ditch and everybody in the crowd thought would help. Both of them, again, if you ask them, do they love God and love people? Absolutely. As a kid, I grew up in church. I'm thankful for that. My parents got my sister and myself to the church all the time, and I'm grateful because God did a great work in my life. He gave me a great love for the church. I'm very grateful for that. I told you my testimony before that when I was sitting in the back of that church on a Sunday night, I heard the gospel preached, and I I thought I was a good kid, and all good kids go to heaven, but the truth of it is is that there are no good kids, and everybody needs the grace and mercy of God. But when we were real little, my uncle had, had worked together with some other guys, and he built a swing set. He put a swing set outside the church, and one Wednesday night, I believe it was, we were all out there, and we were swinging just kids, just like children's ministry kids. And we were all having a great time, and we look up, and a little boy begins to run from a nearby house to the swing set. And the closer we got, we realized that this little boy was not like us, and he was coming from a situation that was not like ours. And the closer we got, we realized that this little child was coming up to the swing set with nothing but his underwear on. And as a kid, it freaked us all out, and we began to run away from the swing set as he began to run to it. The story makes a point, but I can't stand it. As I am walking away, I turn and I look, and our children's director has not yet seen him, or is not yet looking to him. She's looking at us. And she's looking at us with this face of horror with her hands out like, what are you doing? What are you doing? She walked back, and the little boy smiled from ear to ear. He sits down in the swing, and she takes the chains around him like this, and she pulls him back, and she pushes him. She pulls him back, and she pushes him. She swings with that little boy for four or five minutes, and then she takes him by the hand, and she walks him back to his house. Oh, we were in the church all the time, but we weren't godly yet. You hear me? We didn't have the time. We didn't have the resources. We couldn't take up our, we didn't want to be bothered by that. We just wanted to play. Are you hearing me? So all the folks that you would consider untouchable now, all those people that that we would think are are those that we're not going to say that we despise. We love everybody, yet our actions show that we despise some folks. And all of those that we would say are untouchable now, just where do you want them to look when they want a better way? Just where do you want them to look when they're suffering, when they're hurting, when they need help? Because if you pass by them in the ditch, apparently you'd rather just have them die than to deal with them. And then the Samaritan. The expert in religious law would have found this to be shocking. That the hero would be a Samaritan. Surely, surely that the Samaritan is not going to be the hero of the story. But when Jesus told the story of the truth, the Samaritan was the one that was compassionate. 
The Samaritan was the one that was involved in the suffering of the Jewish man. The Samaritan was the one that carried and took care of him. He provided for him. He loved across the barriers. Again, to do that does not require you to give up your conviction. In fact, I hope the love that we have for others would get to the gospel truth that we're all sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God. And unless we turn from our sin, we will be separate from God forever. But he loved across this barrier, and he likely thought, this man represents everything I can't stand. Don't you think the Samaritan thought to himself, I'm going to help him, but my friends and family would not want me to do this. Or maybe he recognized him, and he thought to himself, I know this guy. Lord, you know what he said to me before, but I know I'm going to help him. He knew him, and he probably knew that if the situation were reversed, that the guy in the ditch probably wouldn't do the same for him. Because he was a Jewish man, and they hated Samaritans. Here's what the expert learned that day. We can't say we love people and cuss people. We can't say we love people and continuously make fun of people. We can't say we love people and avoid people. We can't say we love people and leave people out. We can't say we love the nations and do nothing to help them. We can't say we love the nations and do nothing to reach them. We can't say we love God and have nothing to do with God. Come on. We can't say we love God with all we've got, and every once in a while we'll stop by and say hello to him. We're we're lying to ourselves, trying to justify ourselves. You can call it what you want, and if you call it love, you know it's going to be unfailing anyway. That's not love. So, the expert knew when the Samaritan was the hero of the story that he would not be able to fulfill the law of God. He knew that he could identify who the man's real neighbor was, but he knew when he heard this that he would not be able to fulfill the law that says to love God with all and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know how I know that the religious expert figured out that he could not love this man like the law requires? Because look at verse 37. Verse 37 says, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan who showed him mercy. It's like he wouldn't even own it. Yeah, the one, the one who showed him mercy. I hear your point. You see, when, you, when we do things like that, we know that we can't get there. So to not fulfill the law meant to not inherit eternal life. That's what that meant for him. So when that happens, what should he do? He can quit. He can try to justify himself again, which God has already shot that down. Or he can believe not in himself and believe in the one who is telling him the truth and then would live it out to the point of death and raising from the grave to prove the truth is what it is. Did you know that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of this expert of religious law? Don't know if he believed in him or not. Don't know if he spit at his feet and walked off. But Jesus died for him too. And Jesus rose from the grave to give this expert hope of eternal life. If he would turn from himself and turn to God by placing his faith in Jesus, Jesus made a way for him to have heaven forever to be right with God and have purpose in life. Listen, the Scripture says of the Samaritan what the Scripture says of the Savior. Do you see this? We are seeing the perfect love of God lived out in the Samaritan 
We are the ones in the ditch. We are the ones broken. We are the ones that are in need. We are the ones hoping that someone will help us because we can't do anything for ourselves anymore. And what I want you to see today is what is said of the Samaritan is said of the Savior. The Scripture says that the Samaritan was despised. And the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus was despised and rejected. That people turned their backs on him and looked the, other word, looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Meaning Jesus died for those who would not even acknowledge him. The Bible says of the Samaritan, when he saw the man, he felt compassion on him. And one of my favorite verses in all the scripture, Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus looked out on the crowds, the Bible said he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And what moved in his heart was compassion. Not judgment. Compassion. They were like sheep who didn't have a, a shepherd. They needed a savior. They needed rescue. The scripture says of the Samaritan that he soothed this man's wounds and he bandaged them, that he took care of them and healed him up. Isaiah 53, 5 says, Jesus was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so that we could be whole. Listen to this last part. He was whipped so he could be healed. Does that sound like a guy that's trying to win an argument? He's laying down his life for the sins of the world. The scripture says the Samaritan pray, paid the price for his, his care. What did we sing about already? Mark 10, 45. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He paid for our sins to purchase us right standing back with God with his very life. Take note. We are the man in the ditch and the despised Savior is the one whose love never fails. Perfectly honors God. Perfectly loves his neighbor. And we can't do it. And yet he can. And he has invited us by faith towards an entrance to heaven because of his finished work. You married couples... When you took, or if you took, traditional vows, what did you say at the end? Till, how's it go? Death do us part. It's as far as our love can go. We even say, we even say this all the time. I love you to death. To love someone to death is awesome, but that means that at some point it fails. Jesus defeated death. And the grave at Easter, and his love says, I love you to life. Death does not hold up the love of God. I love you to life. That kind of love never, ever fails. Knowing all of this, we can do one of three things. We can quit, and you shouldn't do that because you've heard the truth of why you shouldn't. Second of all, we can justify our actions and we're likely to go this way because to go the other way means that Jesus has to be our Lord and take us over and tell us what to do. But the real only option to be right with God and to inherit eternal life is to go with God's way of making us right through the grace, forgiveness, and finished work of Jesus Christ. I would ask you to stand to your feet just for a moment. I would hope before you leave that you would sing with us and worship with us.
But I want to tell you today before you leave, we give an invitation here, and that invitation is for you to respond to that third way. And maybe you today you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what all that means, but I know what's going on in our heart, my heart and mind, and I need to be saved. And that's all you got to say if you want us to help you here. I need to be saved. Can I tell you that when I got saved, I had somebody explain it to me and help me and my parents. And, and, and then I went to my room as a kid and got on my knees beside my bed and I called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Asked Jesus to come into my heart and forgive me and save me. It's that simple, but it's that serious. To call upon the Lord, to turn from sin and turn to God. And so the invitation that I give, and I know that a lot of people are thinking, you know, I, I need to walk. I need to come up there. I need to talk to you. Well, then come on. Come on. Stop worrying about everybody looking at you. They're probably not even looking at you. Probably dealing with whatever God's going on in their heart. Just come on. But you may even think, man, I appreciate that, and that's a good way to put it, but I'm not coming down there. Fine by me. Just contact us and let us help you. Please, catch us on the way out. Send us a word this week. Let us help you. We are here to help you understand what God's trying to do in your heart. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, as we think about salvation, as we think about maybe we need to be baptized, as we think about joining the church, or maybe we just need to talk to somebody. God, as all this is going on in our heart and mind, I pray, oh Lord, you would take us from this moment of conviction to a place of decision. And Lord, we just pray in Jesus' name that as people are bearing the truth about themselves and about you right now, as I did so many years ago, God, that we would just yield to whatever you're trying to do in our life. Lord, I love you and I thank you, Lord, for loving us. As we stand and we sing this song, as we sing about your mercy and your great love, Lord, may we worship before we leave, but God, may we also respond. If we need to pray right now, Lord, if we should find ourselves at the altar, if we need to come and lay down our cares before you, Lord, if we need to come and talk to somebody, Lord, that we would just be bold in this moment for what we cannot deny is going on in our heart and mind. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your love that never fails us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first line of this verse of this song, His mercy is more, goes like this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Our record of wrongs is vast, but God's unfailing love is more. This altar is open for you.